Hello, and welcome to season two of the London Writers Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parole. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we chat with the award-winning spoken word poet, Anthony Anaxaguru. Anthony was born and raised in a working-class immigrant family with English as a second language, and he faced an uphill battle to make it as a poet. After failing to rouse a crowded North London pub at an open mic night, Anthony literally binned his poems and vowed to never write again. Six years later, after discovering spoken word through YouTube, Anthony picked himself and the pen back up and he hasn't stopped since. Today, Anthony has established himself as a sought-after slam poet, poetry teacher, and YouTube performer. He signed with a major publisher, set up his own imprint, and created London's leading poetry night, Outspoken. This conversation with Anthony is a deep dive into the mind of a poet. We get to learn how poets like Anthony see the world and what it takes to move from a casual observation or everyday feeling to a powerfully written, published, or performed poem. Specifically, Anthony shares how his journaling practice helps him generate ideas for his work, what his editing process looks like, and why he might spend eight or nine hours working on a single poem. Anthony is so candid about his experience of both failure and rejection, he shares why we should be weary of the temptation of prize culture, which is always seeking validation through the next prize, and why it's crucial to develop our own internal value system to sustain ourselves and our writing. Anthony is so humble and generous in this conversation with us, it's no wonder that so many aspiring poets find inspiration in his story and his work. And you know, Anthony also reads us some of his poetry, so stick around to the end to hear it. As always, this conversation was recorded live with our global writing community. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Anthony Anaxaguru. Welcome to the stage. Thank you very much. This is a question we've been asking a lot of our guests. If you could be holding this interview anywhere at any venue in London or elsewhere, where would we be right now? I don't know. You know, I think one of the places I'm most comfortable with is actually the South Bank. It's one of the places where I first started to do panels and I, had to, I was mediating things and did readings and performances. I've got a lot of really good memories of the different spaces around the South Bank Centre. So I'd probably say that would be my number one. It's great. Yeah. All right. Well, we're right at home at South Bank Centre for this interview. So, Anthony, we both read this book and it's really lovely and, and it's generous. And I think I heard on one interview, you wrote this entirely during the pandemic. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nuts. Man. It was really nuts. I didn't think I'd be able to do it. It was only because so the book was a commission. They emailed my agent and asked me to write it. And they had obviously like a deadline that they needed it for. And it was seven weeks. And when I said yes, there was no lockdown, like the pandemic hadn't started. So by the time the contracts had come through and they'd sorted everything out, all the kind of legal side of things, 
my agent was like, right, you're good to go. And I think it was literally the first week of lockdown. It felt like climbing a mountain in a way because you had to block out all the noise. Like social media at the time, everyone was losing their minds on Twitter and on Facebook and the news that every two minutes, you know, more and more people were dying. So I had to lock all that off and just immerse myself in this world that felt like a complete departure from real life, which was a pandemic and a lot of people dying and no one really knowing what was killing them. So yeah, it was, it was just weird. It was really strange. Well, we're glad that you did it because it, it was such a joy to read and it was so such a generous offering of you. There was a couple stories in particular that, that really struck me, struck us, and, and they seem to be formative, you as a creative and as an artist. And one of the stories that you tell is, is the story of you uh, losing your uncle. Yeah. You were at sea, just the two of you, I think he had a heart attack and he died right there. And your uncle seemed to have this kind of wise mentor persona for you. Can you tell us a bit about your uncle and how he influenced you as a writer and become the artist you are today? Yeah, I mean, everything that you've just said is completely correct, but I had no language for any of these things. So there was no language. There was nothing for me to perceive him as being an autodidact, as being someone who was intellectually curious, who was a person of letters, who was also from a kind of war-torn colonial country and worked as a rag and bow man who was completely eccentric over here. So all the things that you've just described him is, is what he was, but I never saw him as that. For me, he was just my uncle Chris, who was my dad's uncle. So he was like my great uncle, but he was also nuts. Like everyone knew him as being completely eccentric and a non-conformist. And I always felt that Shakespeare, poetry, literature and the ruder that he would quote were just part of his eccentricities so I never had them down as anything else but he's just a little bit out there and I think going there and seeing someone who came from very inauspicious beginnings and to just have a natural curiosity about things and also an appetite and an ability to retain information and regurgitate things and perform language like someone who had that innate kind of ability really piqued my interest from a young age because it made me realize I didn't need school and a formal kind of framework to be able to do that and that was the first time that I'd seen someone who was a rag and bowman like that was his job he would just collect people's crap and then try and set it somewhere else to try and do something like that but also have loads of books and know what each book meant and what it what who the writers were so I think having that as a kind of gave impetus to a lot of things with me, just gave me a bit of confidence and courage to kind of go forward and think I have that same penchant. Like I feel that affinity to language and to literature and to ideas. And so did he. And, and then I think when he died, again, it's like, I don't want to get filmic because it's very easy to turn that what happened on it's so surreal and weird that day this is the first time I've written about it since I was 18 actually I've written two poems in my life about it but I really I've never spoken about it publicly I've always tried to work out symbolically what that day and just the, the speed in which he died and the randomness of it from him just being like as we are and I mean he was 61 62 like he wasn't old but it was just that it was one minute you're writing and then you're dead and I think just that transition really, you know, I don't know, it, it did a lot to my, to my head. Mm. Well, well, that's powerful. The fact that you shared it, I didn't realize that, that it, you know, you hadn't really 
written about it and and there definitely was a cinematic element to it it was i found myself gasping while i was reading it and it was a short part of the book but yeah it was it, it was powerful it struck me there's another moment in the book and this is where you to look at like the hero's journey this would almost be the refusal of the call moment and you had gotten some accolades open mic or spoken word and you're asked to perform at a, a higher open mic and you kind of flopped, whether you actually flopped, at least as a young poet, it felt like you flopped. And then you put down the pen, you literally binned your poems for about six years and later picked it back up through mm. YouTube and discovering spoken word. And I'm sure after you've picked it up, you've hit some stumbling blocks along the way, you know, some mini failures. What we're curious about is how did your self-talk change during the inevitable low moments between when you binned the poems vowed never to write again, picked it back up. I'm sure you still felt some failures. How did that self-talk change that enabled you to persist that second time? I never left it. I left it physically, but in my head, I was always living with it. I was always, and that's what really struck me after nearly a decade of like literally being, you know, emotional and a bit emo and a bit sensitive and just kind of thinking, I don't want nothing to do with this, but it, my brain was always working in this way. I could feel it just doing this with language the whole time uh, that I didn't write. And I didn't read a book. I, I literally just had complete nothing. And I played computer games. I was just doing other things to kind of like, you know, pass the time away. And I think it was the coming back when you sit and you ask yourself, when you hit a particular juncture and you have to ask yourself, I'm 27, 28. I've literally got about 35 pounds in my bank. My girlfriend left me. What on earth am I doing here? And you have to ask yourself some very searching questions. And I think that was the, that was the reckoning. That was the moment that I just thought enough's enough. Like, I think you've proved your point. Have a, have a go properly now. And, and just lifting myself up. But like you say, the, the drawbacks, I mean, even to this day, drawbacks are part of the business like you have to be able to see rejection and disappointment as being part of your job and I kind of feel that a lot of people don't mainly because we share the things that we're excited about not the things that upset us so for me rejection now is part of the job in the way that you know having to get the train to go to your office is part of his job or her job so I kind of feel that rejection is you know it's within our remit to get rejected as writers and to feel disappointed because we don't get shortlisted or we don't get the review that we wanted or whatever whatever so you know that, that's kind of how I see it now and it's a lot easier to bear than what it was and I, if I had known that when I was 17 18 I think the difference is is that, that was the first time in my life I felt that I was achieving something I felt positive and I felt inspired and enthusiastic about something that I was for my whole life been told was not very good at and when that all starts to turn around you develop a kind of a propensity to want to preserve that thing and when mm. someone comes and knocks that wall down and they say to you look mate you know you, you're a bit ahead of yourself don't get ideas above your station keep practicing see you down the road that is enough to just like yeah, that makes sense. That's really interesting, this idea of firstly being comfortable with rejection, ex expecting it, in fact, almost like embracing it. But what you just said there about where something means so much to you, that's when you are opening yourself up and allowing yourself to be even more vulnerable. And that takes me to a story where you talk about when you were shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. 
And you talk about how after the elation of that, you start then thinking about all the other prizes that you should potentially win. And you say, I've got a quote that I, I, I really loved. You said, before I knew it, I was caught in the capricious lottery, that is prize culture. Because mm. that's almost like a different set of problems to have. I'm curious about what your self-talk looks like in that sort of space. I think prize culture is dangerous. It's, it's very precarious in that you're at the whim you're at the whims of three people, two people, four people. And they're kind of the way that those discussions in those rooms go are only one's guess. I've been a judge on quite prestigious prizes and I've also been in contention for quite prestigious prizes. So I've kind of felt how it works in both ways. What I meant by that was it gives you a false sense of security in the, oh, if you're good for this prize, that means all prizes are yours. And you, you feel this entitlement. And I, this is what I really hate, is the fact that when you start to feel entitled, prize culture owes you something because of the fact that now you've got one stamp of validation, one stamp of approval. It must mean that everyone now has to see your work in this way, in the way that these three judges saw it. And so you start to build up hopes. And obviously, as you know, the more you build up, the higher you go, the bigger the fall. And that's kind of how it was going. When I didn't get shortlisted for one prize, I got really upset. I was like, well, why not? My book was good. Look, it was on the thing. And then I remembered what this guy had told me. And I remember what this poet had told me. And you start to kind of, it's really messy. For for a person who, this is your first run, it was my first proper run of the gauntlet. I'd never been in, in that position before. So everything was pretty new. And seeing your friends, people who you're happy about, People who you write, you write together, you edit their work, they edit your work. Seeing those guys go further and you still back there, you know, it does weird things to relationships as well. I can imagine. And so how, how do you now navigate that? Like, do you have any thoughts around how you measure success for yourself to yeah, try I'm, and push away from that? Uh, prize culture is a circus. It's great if you win, but ultimately for one person to win, 100 have to lose. That's how it goes. And I kind of feel that, you have to develop a different value system. Your value system has to be recalibrated in order to sustain yourself because it's not healthy to put all your eggs in the basket of prizes because if that's the case, you're not going anywhere. And also what happens is you start to taper your poems to kind of point towards prizes too, you know? Yeah. And I think that's that's equally as, as dangerous. And so I've disassociated myself. Like, well, the next thing that I write, whatever happens, happens. And I'm cool. So long as I have a career writing books and so long as someone is on the other end to read them, that's it. That's as far as my kind of want goes. I love that. Well, we're definitely on the end to hear them. And I wonder if we could hear a piece by you. I'll read Some Uber. Uber was a poem that was um, actually inspired by an, an incident that took place on the day of the, the Brexit referendum in, in 2016. And it's from after the formalities. Door shuts, winds slap a magic tree around. A radio hums songs into us both. One of two phones rings. From an edge, he tells her he'll call back in a language half packed back when I assume things took a turn for the worse. A flag hanging from the rear view. I ask where, he says Mauritius. Returning my question, I say Cyprus, asking if he prefers it here. 
He says, sleep is easier, the roads at night less congested. At the lights, I ask about children. From his pocket, he pulls a photo of a girl. I note the way her smile matches her mother's in the picture, everyone's together, smiling. She turned nine last week, he said, it's been over five years. Now, rain, wipers wave like a tired pair of arms, a car makes an emergency stop, a homeless man moves like a saw into traffic. When will you see her again, I ask, soon, soon, now traffic builds, the other way would have been quicker, he says, to our right, a van pulls up, two men motion to lower windows, in rain, he does, we do, go home, home, go home, home, laughing up a storm front, then speeding off, he tucks his daughter back in, her mother, himself gripping the wheel like a gun. How much can a pair of hands keep? One of two phones rings, declining the call. The song on the radio ends, an ad suggests a weekend break to Europe, turning it off, bringing us right into where we were, asking, what about you? Do you have children? Do you prefer it here? Wow, I love that. Wow. Everyone's on mute, but I'm sure they're clapping. Anthony, thank you. Wow. So there's something I've noticed about, I mean, I've listened to quite a few of your you reading your poems as well. When I hear you read your poems, I want to almost like fall into the screen. There's this real intensity and focus, like every word, I feel like I'm hanging on every word. So thank you very much for, for reading this out. But when we first announced that we were interviewing you, and we, when I even just talked about it to our friends and to our community, there was a real reaction, like people had very strong response, a very strong response to the fact that we were interviewing you because they admired your work. And I wondered if you had any thoughts and reflections about what is it about your work that creates such a reaction? I have no idea. I, <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I mean, I'm shocked. I went, just as you were talking, I thought you were gonna go somewhere else with it. Like I didn't think you were gonna say, because of you I thought it was I was trying to work out what could be the closing clause here like where could the, where could she go with it <laughs> yeah I, 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 I literally I don't know I'm obviously like massively grateful and I'm constantly I think what frustrates me is I wish I could believe it I wish I could believe what you tell me and I can't and I don't know if that's because of my childhood if it's because of I'm constantly dissatisfied with every single thing I, I do. And it pisses me off because I've written a lot and I work hard and I can never sit back and think, oh, I did something all right. It's not, you know, like it's cost me a lot of money having therapy to try and sort it out. <laughs> a, a counter thought is that might be a prerequisite for being a writer and an artist is you can never quite <laughs> be satisfied. Never, never. Right. And it is that it's a constant dissatisfaction. And sometimes, obviously, like I've stopped talking about it because some people think you're just trying to pander to get like, oh, no, we really love you. We think you're great. It's genuinely not that. It's the fact that I go to bed every night and think I could have done it better, man. Like, it's literally that every single. And so you just take that energy and you take that dissatisfaction and you make and you make and you make and you make. And I think that's it. I, I've accepted that that will probably be me until my dying days is just to keep 
taking that restlessness, taking that dissatisfaction, that malaise, it's a, it's a discomfort. There's something in it that isn't, and just keep going and mm. trying to find another way in and another way out. Well, we, we kind of hope you don't find it because <laughs> then we can keep <laughs> hearing your poems, Anthony. So we'd like to dig into your writing process. What's a journey to write a poem like that? And maybe that one as an example, you talked about what was happening in the world. But can you take us from germ of an idea to finished poem and maybe that one in particular? What, what did it look like for you? There's a lot of different stages, if I'm honest. I work through several notebooks. I have lined notebooks. I have bigger notebooks like this and inside the notebooks, these are drafts. And then there's right in here. And then I have historical dates so I'll just find stuff and then I'll kind of have like things like this all happening but the idea of not having any lines indicates um, a freedom and then over here I'll just go and get them now these are notebooks that I work across but each one does a different thing so this was actually the first notebook that I ever started to write in this one here and I think I've even got the date this is from the card not accepted. So this was, what date have I got? Yes, yeah, so the 9th of the 2nd, 2009 was when I got this oh. one. And, and like I say, it's just, there's loads of note taking. And what I do a lot of the time is go through these and pull out lines that I really like. And then I put that line on a piece of paper and I just run. And usually it goes through seven, eight, nine, ten 10 iterations before it reaches the final thing. And even the final thing is not the final thing because then if a publisher takes it, you work with an editor and it's going through more then. So yeah, mm. it's, literally, it's literally that. Begins with little bits of language just scattered around the notebook and then made into something as it goes and go on. Mm. Do you carry these notebooks with you at all time? I mean, pre-COVID time, when yeah, you're on the bus, got... when you're on the tube, when you're walking down the street. <laughs> I've got a little one in my pocket in my coat that I always take. I've got the notes on my phone and then I've got, oh yeah, here's the one from my pocket. So I've got this one that I carry oh, around. Cute. So yeah, there's something on me all the time. And I think my brain is just, I mean, that's just how it is. It's just nonstop. It's the, and it helps actually to distill the noise. But the best part of this is, this is, this is the daddy of daddies is this one. And this is, this, this I use for diary entries. So I do a lot of diary writing in here. And with the diary stuff, what I can do is I can just go in and so I got I actually pinched this from Lydia Davis, but it's the idea of sitting down in the morning for like half an hour and listening to things that are going on around you and writing down exactly what you're hearing. So outside, a guy has just told his girlfriend to be quiet. The dog won't stop barking, blah, blah, blah. You keep going and then you'll get to a piece of action that is really interesting. The guy from next door is moaning that someone nicked his cement mixer. What? Cool. That's where your poem starts, you know, and then you begin there, so. That's really interesting. That's a really wonderful prompt. I just want to riff because th these details are so great. These are, this is like, these are gems to, to us as, as writers in our community. There's the morning exercise. Do you do that every morning? Is that? Yeah, I try. I mean, I have, I'm a lover of tea, Gong Fu Brewing part of the greatness of that is you can do half an hour 45 minutes of just drinking tea in the morning and if I, and the phone makes me quite anxious so I try and just go into a notebook and just even if I write six seven lines 
even if it's a free ride, if it's something, if it's a bad dream that I had, if I'm feeling a particular way, I try and like just pay attention to what I'm feeling and write that in like, in, in a paragraph and, that, and that's it. And then, like I say, I can go back into these notebooks in about a year's time and just pull something out and I'll respond to that line very differently because I'll forget what I was even talking about. And that's the beauty of it is that you don't need to have any context behind these. These are just like moments that exist on their own and they have no up and no bottom. So you can do what you can go wherever you want with it. Mm. And so is that the only structured time you have in the day that you said, okay, I'm sitting down to write and the rest of it's sporadic? Or do you have any other times in the day that you sit down and say, I'm writing right now? Yeah, Saturday is, uh, during the week, it's really hard because I do, ed- I work with several poets i'm editing their work and so throughout the the week i'm usually looking at other people's poetry and their manuscripts but on saturday is a day where there's no emails and i just try and do seven eight hours to myself and i can spend seven eight hours on like one poem just going over and over and over seven or eight hours on one poem wow yeah that's that's an incredible amount of focus yeah, it's, and it's nuts because it's, it becomes an obsession in that my brain gets tired at around, if I start at like half nine, ten, by around three, I feel my brain, my brain's tired. But I'm so addicted to this poem, like I know it so well now, I can't walk away from it. So I end up staying knowing that I might actually be messing the poem up because I'm not as concentrated as what I was three hours ago. So I have to literally pull myself away and say, mm. come back tomorrow or come back on Monday and just comb mm. through it again. Otherwise, I could literally make it worse because I've lost my mm. grip. I've lost my focus. Mm. When you're spending that much time on a poem, are you partially reading it out loud? What does that interaction look like with yourself? Is it just reading it or are you actually performing some of it to see how it sounds? Yeah, I, I usually write the line. I think about the thought. I think about the dots. I think about the kind of layering of the poem. And then I look at the compression. So I kind of look at how it how it sounds. Am I, am I pushing the vowels together? I'll say it out if it feels clunky, if it feels too meaty. I try and comb it through to get the smoothest, cleanest line that I can and then when I get stuck I usually go straight over to my bookshelf and I pull out a collection of poems and I open the poem and I look at the first line that I see and I write that on the page and then I jump off that and then I delete that line and then I put some glue and merge the two my line and that line together and then I'm back in the poem again so yeah I mean there's so much that i think about from aesthetics to kind of the concreteness of a poem how it kind of typographically how it looks on the page to the music to its acoustics and then also to the kind of composition the texture of the language Uh, you don't want to jump off you know go into different registers you want to keep the tone like even and balanced as well so I'm thinking of so many different things I, I feel myself thinking about so many different things when I'm writing that's fascinating. It had never occurred to me that you would need that much time to look and edit and compress and squash and perfect yeah. a poem, but it makes it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, me neither, to be honest. It was literally like the more the more I was doing it, the harder I realized it was. Right. <laughs> and at, at the early days, I thought, wow, this is just and I kind of make the point about Tanishi Coates, you know, where he he says that poetry isn't just an outpouring. And, he, and a lot of people assume that it comes out of this burst of energy. You just sit down and boom, and then you're done. You walk away. You know? Right. It's like with novel writing, it takes time. It takes, it's like building, building yeah. something from the ground up. 
your book had so many interesting points on how you approach poetry and thoughts around it. One of the things you mentioned is the academic side of poetry and how you were intimidated by that side of it and how you thought that your class and ethnicity precluded you from being able to really get into it, to appreciate that side of things. When did that change for you? When I realised it was a self-fulfilling prophecy in that we assume that because we're working class people, that we're ethnic kids, that it means that we're only allowed to access a particular kind of poetry. And this isn't for us. And I got to a point where it was always me accepting what the establishment had had said. And then when I, I got to a point where I was like, I don't have to like Chaucer. It's not this binary thing. I cannot like Chaucer and like, you know, Frank O'Hara that's fine like you can do that you don't have it's not that if you don't like if you haven't read the Iliad it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to ever read poetry again so I kind of felt that once I broke the myth that my class made well my, my class allocated a particular kind of poetics to me once I got rid of that then I felt I was a lot more liberated because really you can't teach someone how to think about poetry I can give my mum a poem and my mum is not you know she's not learned in poetry but she say to me I don't know what the bloody hell that was talking about and I'll just be like all right but how did it make you feel and she can literally do a whole kind of disquisition on the way the poem made her feel and I think that's it you've engaged you've participated with that poem like you've done it like that's basically it and so I kind of feel that we put up these barriers where it's like because I am a working class kid this kind of poetry is for me. For me, this is the dangerous part, is that working class poetics are assumed to be accessible. And that word accessible is incredibly loaded. Now we get into the politics of language where accessibility means simple, means less urbane, means easier to understand. And I kind of feel that it's basically a part, like you're basically, it's a subtle cuss saying, yeah your poetry is for the for the plebs basically you know people who aren't very high-minded and that's bullshit and I think that when you realize that's not the case and that what the working class experience is so vast and people who have an affinity to books and to letters and to literature will appreciate it in all its guises whether they come from the, a working class middle class or upper class if you like language you will gravitate towards different kinds of poetry I think what gets conflated is this idea of the casual reader versus the aficionado, you know, and even that there is poetry that is calibrated to the more casual reader. And that is absolutely fine. But that's not working class poetry. It's just poetry that's calibrated to a casual reader. I love the permission that you I feel like you're giving us permission to trust our own opinions For sure. to, be, to be OK with what we do enjoy. I don't know. Because I asked myself, what does class mean? What, what, I mean, when we say working class, you've got cultural capital, you've got financial capital, and you've got social capital. You know, there's a guy down there, he's a plumber. He makes, you know, he does two grand a week cash. He's got a lot of money. He's a working class man who makes two grand a week cash money. But then it depends on where you put the lens. And I think with class, because it is so ambiguous and subjective, it all just depends on, and for me, when we talk about class and poetry, it's cultural capital, which is what people, you know, use as the metric. It's really fascinating, really interesting topic. I'd, I'd like to move it to this sentence you have about pushing your writing as far as it can go. 
I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that means to you and how you um, apply that to your writing. I often imagine that, you know, when you have an idea, it's usually a, in a formative place, in a place that's quite safe. You know, you might be bordering a trope, you might be bordering some kind of familiar language. And I think for me, it's not settling at first base. It's about moving further and further out until you feel you're at the edge of the idea. When you get to the precipice, that's when you've taken it. And if you literally jump, you're going to lose the reader. Like one little step forward and the whole, and the reader's going to be like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. So that's kind of how I try and gauge, especially when you're working around imagism and association, you have to really try and balance out how far you go before you lose someone. And you might know what it means, but no one else does. So I kind of feel you have to have a level of imaginative participation that the reader is able to feel themselves involved and invited in and if you don't have that calibration that frequency of language the reader sometimes just feels locked out of the poem and then it becomes one of these things that gets kind of pushed over to the enclaves of academia where you get the references and the dictionaries and the thesauruses and the encyclopedias out and only six people in the world can actually access it it's like an interesting battle between trying to push yourself but also understanding the boundaries for your readers and finding your voice. You have this really interesting phrase. I read that you tell your students from Emily Dickinson, tell the truth, but tell it slant. I love that idea. Could you could you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, it's quite a common, I mean, it's one of the first things that I heard, and I must have read it in one of these how-to books years ago, but it, it was basically that. It's like, tell the truth, but bend it. And I think Ocean Vong has a similar line where he says, I begin with truth and end in art, which is kind of the same thing, you know, like you can begin in a, in a place of certainty, but where you go from there, that depends on the kind of vision or visionary that you are. The, the thing with poetry, what you find the most is people want to be literal. There's two things. People either want to be literal or they conflate poetry for life writing and that's the other thing is that you get a lot of people who write poems. It's literally a memoir. So I'm like, I'm, this is great. I love, I'm really sorry this happened to you. Or that's a really nice story, but there's no poetry here. <laughs> and so what you have to do is go back into it and literally get a more of a lateral shift happening, like move the lines out more because at the moment it's all too rigid and narrow and straight. So it needs to bend. It needs to have that push towards the left and the right, that movement that makes poetry, I guess, so compelling, you know. And now I see why, why you need all those hours to yeah. sit and get up and go to your bookshelf and push it, bend it. So if you're working with a student and you're giving them that feedback, what do you then help them to get there? Is there any exercises? I know there's a bunch that you share in the book. How would you help someone make it slant? What what you give them to, I don't have to workshop it? Yeah, I, I usually ask students questions about their line. So if they've got a line that just says something like, as I was walking to the bus stop, I fell over. I'd be like, you've got two options. You can either like disrupt the syntax so that it's not so straight. You can have at the bus stop, I was running and then I fell over. You can move things or reshuffle the language, which you get poets like Peter Gizzi, who's fantastic at disrupting syntax in this kind of way. And the other one is to look at things from a, a semiotic perspective and just ask them, what does the bus stop signify? What does you falling over represent symbolically? And when you start looking at things as symbols, every event and every image in a poem, every detail is symbolic, 
then it starts to create a more sort of three, four dimensional layer. Whereas the bus stop is no longer just a bus stop and the bird is no longer just the bird. You know, everything takes on a, a kind of double life. And I think it's encouraging young people to think about language in that way. But what the pushback is, sir, it doesn't make any sense. So then I have to ask them, well, what does sense mean? I put my grandmother in the ground last Monday. I looked down into her grave and I thought to myself, this makes absolutely no sense. So there are many things in life. You watch a baby be born, it makes absolutely no sense. And so I kind of feel that we have to reconfigure what we think. What we, when we think of sense, we think of logic. The cup, the water, the mouth, the drink, I've quenched my thirst. That's all a system of logic. How do you disrupt that logic and have other things in there that will still associate, but they won't be traditionally married to that linear journey where all of those things are associated. Mm, that's great. And one of the things that it reminds me a little bit, there's an exercise here. You talk about writing about your hands, yeah. but you're not allowed to use the word hands. And then you suggest now start not from the beginning, but halfway is often better. Yeah. So this idea of playing with timelines also seems to be one that you can jolt. Yeah, Magic. because again, we learn language through storytelling. So everything has a start, a middle and an end, whereas poetry is a moment. And so it doesn't need those two bits there. It's the loaf of bread analogy. You know, you cut the top off, you cut the bottom and you've got your, you've got your poem. So what I often tell people to do is your poem starts three, four lines in and finishes three, four lines before you think it's finished. Because the idea is that everyone wants to conclude and resolve the poem because they think that's what the readers want, start, middle and end. But my thing is, no, let the reader take the poem home with them. If you keep the last line open, the poem then travels. If you close the last line by resolving it, there's nowhere for it to go. I saw that thing about Matthew Sweeney's chopping the poem at its legs. I love that idea. It's brilliant. Really? Yeah. But I guess the question is, like, how do you know? So it's a bit like, when is the paint dry enough? I don't think you can teach that. I really don't. I think that's, you know, there are certain things that you, you just have to feel. You have to know. Yeah. Like you have to have that feeling of, I've been here so many times, I can sense where it is. And I think genuinely, as I, I'm not into the kind of hippie thing, but there definitely is an element of the more you read, the more you get a sense for how poems work. And it's literally just from reading. And you, you get a sense of where things end and where's an interesting place to end if you think along the lines of if you think of the word interesting as opposed to kind of definitive then it kind of it swaps like i just want to be interesting on the page i don't want to be correct i don't want to be certain i want to be interesting wow i love that idea of leaving leaving the reader with questions leaving yeah. it open to interpretation which is also, what your stuff does yeah i mean if you end the poem with a question which is what i've done on the uber you implicate the reader right because now you throw the poem back onto them and now you're literally the reader is having an internal monologue with themselves where they're asking them that question the same thing happens if you do your poem in second person you mm -hmm. implicate the reader it's like starting a conversation you're starting you're starting mm -hmm. something rather than ending something. absolutely absolutely you talk about knowing when a poem's finished. You talk about the book, you used to fence in your ideas, kind of keep them to yourself. How do other readers or friends or kind of sparring partners, other poets, how do you use them to help you know when something's done? Do you use other people to help you know when something's done? 
Yeah, yeah. I have my uh, confidants who I um, I share my work with in its various stages. And I like, po I love poets who are brutal. I've really kind of got into that like <laughs> sadomasochistic kind of like way of, of having my work dealt with because I, I don't want all that. Oh, this is lovely. Oh, this is really beautiful. Just tell me where it's not working and let me go back and carry on. And so they would say stuff like, oh, it gets really baggy here, or you could try pushing this a bit more, take this out further. You're too in bed with yourself here. Bring it up more. You're too deep. And so it's just those pointers. And then what I do is I then sit and go back over what they're saying to see if there's any truth in it, if there's any merit in, in what they're talking about. But also, like, my friends are all junior or senior lecturers at university level. And so they can kind of talk about the lines that are working. And sometimes it's the, the conceit of the poem, like the general conceit is not very good, but the, the poet, the lines are good, but the, the, the kind of philosophy of the poem isn't. So you need to go back and try and put some intellect into the poem as well. Because at the moment, there's too much show. And I think with a lot of lyric poems, they're very performative. You can be swept in by the poem's affectation. So what you want to try and do is give the poem a purpose, give it brains, as well as like a good aesthetic. And I kind of feel that that's a lot harder to do. So I have to go back in. And that's when I ask myself those questions. You know, what's the poem pointing towards? What questions am I asking? And what am I learning as I journey through the poem? Because when I began, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And so, you know, Jericho Brown talks about this idea that you get to the end of the poem you, and you discover something that you didn't know before. And that's the beauty of it. And if the reader has that revelation as well, you've both, you know, arrived there together. That's mm. wonderful. It goes back to the topic, like the idea of having a conversation. You've really made me think about that idea, about how you're in conversation with the and I think you only do half the work you know the writer is only half the conversation and then you give it to the reader to render it in a way that is private and personal to them yeah. so it's a rendering versus because you render your experience through your lens and then they re-render it through their lens so it's literally being distilled and distilled and distilled as it goes through different readerships you know mm. I love that. It's, it's really impactful what you're saying. It's, I feel like I'm going to sit on this for days and days. Definitely. So kind of riffing on that of interacting with readers, sharing it with readers, you know, a lot of writers, we can feel allergic to anything that feels like pushing your work out, selling it, marketing. When you want to post a new video or post a poem, the act of sharing it, how do you think about that, that act of sharing? How have you gotten past that if there was ever blocks for you i mean i'll, I'll give you a, an example man like last i had a poem published in an anthology i put it up two weeks ago on my twitter it got like eight likes i took it down and then i for the next for the next week and a half i had to ask myself what just happened why did you do that why did you put something up and then take it down because it didn't get the likes that you wanted it to get. And so I had to have that whole conversation with myself and I'm still haven't, I mean, I know why it's because we see these as value systems as the kind of, you know, as a sensible metric to gauge work, but Twitter is definitely not that neither is it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think now I have to get to a place that my next part of my journey and my understanding is getting to a place where I disassociate and detach from the writing once it's done. 
and I have no personal connection to it, aside from the fact that, yeah, I, I wrote this. And whatever people want to say about it, they can. And that's it. And I think that you have to be that. You know, you're in a conversation with someone. You don't have to justify it. You haven't got the time to argue with them. You just need to let them say, I don't really like this. I think this is actually quite crap. It's like, okay, cool. Thanks very much. And that's it. It's part of the job. It's an occupational hazard. And so I kind of feel that that's what, that's my next stage of my development is to just be cool with things getting two likes and other things getting 200 likes and not feeling a way about either one, you know? This goes back to where we started this idea of rejection and accepting it, expecting it, embracing it. And it's Um, the hardest thing for me because of my upbringing and my early experiences in secondary school and, and throughout rejection is something that I'm constantly in my head I'm obsessed with the idea that I'm just not good enough and I think I'm not saying that I'm an overachiever but the overachievers that I do know that's what's happened to them and that's why they just keep going because no matter what they achieve it's never enough you get to the top of one mountain you realize you're surrounded by 101 mountains and and that's just it you know and I think that that's where I sit with it in that I will keep making work probably at this speed that I've been working out for the last 10 years um, and just always think, nah, it's not very good. Nah, this isn't, nah, I can do better. And that's it. <laughs> hmm. Well, thank you for your, your honesty because I, I know there's about 60 people in the room here that are feeling something very similar. So we, we appreciate it. And thank you, Anthony, for, for that. Yeah. And we're all in this together, which is maybe yeah. it's, that's the good thing. It's also really interesting to just hear about trading up problems, the different problems yeah. that we face, the different stages of career. I mean, I, I know people who have, they've written one thing, they've self-published two pamphlets and they are good. Like they're good. Like they, in what they're proud of what they've done. They like what they've done. They've got a good kind of baseline and they just work from that. And I always probe into like, you know, their early years and they were in like, you know, the top sets at school or they had a family who were, very encouraging they were always told you can do anything you want son daughter I love you we love you we've got you like all that kind of stuff whereas mine was the complete complete opposite any idea I had I was just told I was an idiot and just stop being stupid and get a job and so I kind of feel that that has a lot of that is ingrained in in my in my work ethic yeah Hmm. that makes sense thank you for sharing that just uh, around the outspoken open mic that you do which is, for those of you who don't know, it's one of London's leading open mic nights. And you, you've you been running that at the Southbank Centre. Yeah, 2018, you've got the residency there, yeah. It's incredible. We run a, a sort of slightly different, a lot more um, low-key open mic night. So it's something that we're very interested in. If you could tell me a little bit about what you think the success of your open mic, what's behind it? Yeah, I think it was the fact that, I mean, the idea of Outspoken was it came about when I was just, I went for a period of just gigging all the time and everything that I was going to consisted of an open mic. This is around 2012. And I was doing three, four gigs a week. I was completely exhausted. And sometimes I'd have to, I'd be on at like half 10 at night and the open mic would be at the beginning and they have the feature act at the end. And by that point, everyone had gone home because it was late and buses and trains and whatever else. And so I thought, hang on a minute, why don't I start a night? that doesn't have an open mic, that you just have three feature acts and two musicians and that's it. None of this whole like, because with open micers as well, they turn up, they pay their five pound, they read and then they go. And so the kind of, it was all just, it was annoying me if I'm going to be blunt. And that's how Outspoken started. So I just thought, I just want to have a night 
and there wasn't anything like it. So I thought I'm not really being a prick because there's so many open open mic nights. So having one that doesn't have an open mic is actually a bit of a break from the norm, you know. So that's how that came about. I did the first one in Camden at Proud Galleries. I think I'd already had a bit of a following from the YouTube videos. And so we got like 150 people through the door on the first oh, night. Wow. Everyone was like, whoa, this is nuts for like poetry. It was going to be bi-monthly, but I was getting emails and messages from people saying that was so good. Can you do another one? So I thought, all right, it was bi-monthly, but I'll just do it monthly. And then that was it. And then we just started. And then through the years, you know, we lost venues, people joined, then people left to do other things. You know, we were at the Forge in Camden. They went bankrupt. And then for a year, we were nomads. So we would literally didn't know where we were going to have the night. Should we keep doing it? I don't know if we can get funding for this and a whole load of issues that we had trying to sustain it. But now there's seven, eight of us. There's a publishing house. There's a masterclass series. There's a whole load of different things. And it, the ideas were literally just all the things that I felt that I lacked when I first got into poetry, i.e. a publishing house, a masterclass and a place to perform. Those are the three things that I always felt I never had access to because of the place that I was coming from. I thought I'm going to try and do what I can to make sure that people now don't have to face those same issues by just offering a masterclass at a very cheap price, at offering a live night to watch professional poets come and read at affordable prices and also having a publishing house that creates work by, you know, by brilliant poets. So that was it. That, that was the thinking. Sounds absolutely brilliant. Great ideas for us as we continue to grow this yeah. community and a lot of great stuff in there. And we will share links post event that anyone can check out all this stuff. But to wrap, we had an idea. Yeah, well, I would just love to hear another poem from you. I wonder if you could lead us out. How long have you got? Oh, we've got ages. No, it's up, to, it's up to you. I can read the title poem. It's six and a half minutes long. Yeah, let's let's do it. I'm I'm happy for it. Anthony is the man. He's going to give us six and he's a half gonna, he's minutes. Gonna, he's going to lead us into the night. All right. This is called After the Formalities. It's, it's the title poem from the book, and it looks at the history of race as a construct, and it kind of it's interspersed with my own family's experience of migration coming from Cyprus. In 1481, the word race first appears in Jacques Debrez's poem, The Hunt. Debrez uses the word to distinguish between different groups of dogs. In that hard year, grandparents arrived on a boat with a wall behind them and a set of dog leads, bullet holes in the sofa, burst pillows, split rabbits, passports bound in fresh newspapers, bomber planes, a dissenting priest, a money bag sucking worry. On the boat, grandmother anticipated England's winters with the others, slick snow on gold streets, grandfather grieved two dogs he'd left pedigrees, blue bottles decaying at the base of their bowls. The dogs of England were different, the water though, fine to drink. In 1606, French diplomat Jean Nicot added the word race to the dictionary to denote distinctions between different groups of people. Nicotine is named after him. 
In London, grandparents lived with only a radio, a lamp favoring the wall's best side, curtains drawn, Byzantine icons placed on paraffin heaters, arguing through whispers, not wanting to expose tongues, stories circulating. What neighbors do if they catch you saying, I'm afraid, in a language that sounds like charred furniture being dragged across a copper floor, grandfather always blew smoke out the lip of his window, so too did his neighbour, colourless plumes merging, how it's impossible to discern the brand of cigarette a single pile of ash derives from. In his 1684 essay, A New Division of the Earth, French physician Francois Bernier became the first popular classifier to separate humans into races using phenotypic characteristics. Mother's skin is the colour of vacations, her hair barefoot black, an island's only runway, reports of racist attacks, father turns up the volume, turns us down, chews his pork, stings the taste with beer, tells mother to pass the pepper, there is never a please, he asks if she remembers the attack, the hospital, his nose, a Coca-Cola bottle picked from his skull, Yes, she mutters, the chase, dirty bitch, how will make you white, Aphrodite hard, dirty dog, trembling with the street light, please God, not tonight, the kids. In his essay of 1775 on the natural variety of mankind, J.F. Blumenbach claimed that it was environment which caused the variety in humans. In the bathroom mirror, I spat blood from my mouth, quaver breath, suburban. My brother, desperate to piss, pulled the door open, asking what happened. I tried to fight and lost. Why? Because the island we come from is smaller than this. Their names are shorter, pronounceable, so they exist. Even after their noses break, they still don't hook like ours. Their sun is only half peeled. He lifted his top to show me two bruises to remind me of something. How history found its own way of surviving. A dark wash mixed with the whites spinning round and around. In the bathroom mirror, my brother spat blood from his mouth, suvla breath and home, me desperate to piss, pulling the door open, asking what happened. He tried to fight and lost. Why? Because the island we come from is larger than this. Here, we chew up too much of their language, leave behind an alphabet of bones. We will never exist in their love songs. How many bruises does it take to make a single body? I left him. Surviving history, a dark wash mixed with the whites spinning round and around. In 1859, British naturalist Charles Darwin wrote, on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. If the house phone rings after midnight, someone you know is dying, breathing in 10 black moons under a siren or belfry. From the wound in my uncle's back leaked the first atlas, blood escaping him like a phantom vaulting over the spiked gates of heaven, the knife half still, half drunk, the motive skin or prayer. We went to visit, 
In the window's condensation, his daughter wrote, Daddy, don't die on the water of her breath. That evening, my father came home, one hand trumpet, the other reef, all his fists, the law. In his seminal book of 1911, Hereditary in Relation to Eugenics, eugenicist Charles Davenport wrote, two imbecile parents, whether related or not, have only imbecile offspring. She had the same colour hair as Jesus. Most boys smile after. When we were done, I moved the blonde streak from my arm, wondering how much of my body was still mine. I smelt of rain on an old umbrella. My fingers a burnt factory. She asked if she was my first, and when I said yes, she smiled, pulling the covers up, whispering not to get too comfortable how her father would be back. The bed, a wet flag, the duvet, breaking news. On the shelf, a gollywog above her family portrait, poised like a saint. The Bengal famine of 1943 killed four million people. Churchill ordered food to be sent directly to British soldiers in Europe. On hearing the number of Bengalis who had perished, he asked, why hasn't Gandhi died yet? Outside the KFC, racists have always looked so sure to me, like weathermen. Driving his skull into mine like a belief, I saw how even evil can feel warm and smell good when close enough. A crowbar wedged against my throat. Slowly the lights began to wave, chips by my feet, black iron warming my skin so silently I could hear how suffering learns to soothe the jaws of antiquity. These men, irrational as any god and me emptying inside the promise of my oxygen tank. Those whom the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. We must be mad, literally mad as a nation, to be permitting the annual inflow of some 50,000 dependents who are, for the most part, the material of the future growth of the immigrant descended population, Enoch Powell, 1968. After the formalities, of course I said London, and of course he asked again. When I said Cyprus, he leaned into his chair, recalling a family holiday. The weather, sublime. The people accommodating, particularly towards the English, how it was a shame about the Turkish thing. And your parents, when did they enter here? Oh, in the late 50s, I replied. So before the Immigrants Act. Yes, I said, before. Well, good for them, he said putting the lid on his pen, closing his pad, asking me to talk a bit more about my previous roles. In 2001, philosopher Robert Berlusconi wrote, the construct of race was a way for white people to define those who they regarded as other. In those days, I was required to fill out forms with multiple boxes, some I left blank. My father would notice my omission, filling in the white option with his black biro. I crossed it out, telling him I'm going with other. My mother, wearing the same sad skin as before, said, we are not white. The look he gave her was snatching the form from me, the same X dominating so much white. Let me tell you, 
Nobody in their right mind need make themselves such an obvious target, he affirmed. It's amazing how ideas start out, isn't it? Nigel Farage, 2016. My grandmother will die somewhere in her skeleton, white sheeted, either form thick, her mouth all beetle. My family will gather round her body, all fig. My mother will look for coins, despite there being nothing for money to save. Another lady, dying the same, will goad our kind. Through thick tubes, she'll scorn her voice, a blue bottles, hot wings, you're all dogs, foreigners and dirty. Outnumber us even in dying. The nurse will apologize for the whole of history. Drawing the curtain, mud is always the last thing to be thrown. A prayer reaching for the pride of an olive, like a hint to hold. Thanks very much. Wow. That was fabulous. That was beyond. That was just everything. That was wonderful. Anthony, this has been such a treat. Thank you for your time, your generosity, your wisdom, your poems, everything you do. Again, we are a little happy and satisfied that you're not quite satisfied. So you can keep writing for us, uh, <laughs> Anthony, and we'll, we'll be cheering beside you and behind you. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into the London Writers' Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and would like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will also have access to our interview archive, workshops and our cosy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, like so many writers we know, you're welcome to write with us at Writer's Hour. It's a free, virtual, hour-long writing session. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and a drink of your choice to cheers us. We think it's the world's best virtual co-working space for writers, creatives, or really anyone who just needs to get work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up, and we hope to see you there. Until we write again. Cheers, everyone.